We're going to start out with Jesus, our Passover sacrifice, warns us, watch and be ready. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 through 12, and Mark 13, 32 through 36. So if you would, stand for reading of God's Word. Now, this is the Olivet Discourse, and it is a strange place to start for, a, for an Easter talk, but I think you will find out why I start there, or I'm starting there in just a few moments. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. And many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And we'll add verse 13. But he endures to the end, shall be saved. Mark chapter 13, verse 32. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray that you do not know, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants, and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster or the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. Thank you for this resurrection season, this Passover season that we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. Everything in Christianity is predicated on that one event of our Savior dying for our sins and raising from the dead, and we are so grateful. We remember this during this Passover time. Please speak to us today words of truth and help us to leave here realizing that we've heard from the living God speaking to our spirits today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now, Jesus' final week was a huge week of ministry. When you get to the end of your life, he knows that he's going to die in just a few days. Just a few days. And when you know you're going to die, you lay it all out there. You lay it all on the carpet. Everything that is very important. And he shares with these guys, there's like 40 different things that he, that he went through. He comes into Jerusalem uh, the five days before on his triumphal entry. This is when he weeps over Jerusalem. He curses the fig tree. He cleanses the temple four days before. Three days before, he goes through the questioning. You hear the parable of the wedding. The Sadducees question him. You have the Olivet Discourse three days before. Two days before, there's a plot to kill him. And Mary anoints the feet of Jesus, and on the day before the Passover, uh, you, have the, you have the Last Supper, and he gives you the New Commandment, that sort of thing. There's 40 of these things. It's a significant thing at the end of a person's life. You hold nothing back, and he's telling us the things that he wants us to know. And one of those things is the Olivet Discourse. When is he coming back? When is he coming? What will the conditions be when he comes back? So he's telling us these things, and he says, don't waste time uh, worrying about what's going to happen. I'm in control. You can trust me. And Jesus wasn't concerned, and he wasn't worried. He worked until the end. See, in America, we have retirement. 
<laughs> we're tired, yay! And no, in Christianity, we work until the end. It might change. Your ministry might change. But you are to work until the master comes, or you go to him. So he says, watch and be ready. And Jesus would indeed die for the sins of the world. He was buried for three days, and he would be resurrected. And I want to assure to you that Jesus is alive. And he will return. Why do we believe that? Because he said it and we can trust him. He's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. So, so be alert. Be ready. Now, what we must know is this. Jesus had to die as the sacrifice for our sins, the Lamb of God who dies for the sins of the world. He had to do that before he would come back as king, and he has accomplished that. Jesus is our Passover sacrifice. Jesus is the innocent Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. Now, if you remember, the Jewish Passover, and I, I don't know how much you know about, about, about the Passover, but it's simply a picture of Jesus, our Passover Lamb. Every time the Jews do a, a Passover Seder, they're actually, it's a, there's a type or a picture of the Passover Lamb coming. So in Exodus chapter 12, the Passover Lamb is sacrificed, the blood is placed on the lentil and the doorpost, and the death angel will then pass over those places where the blood has been placed, where the blood has been placed. Now, I just want to just give you a little remembrance about Passover. It's, it's a remembrance of the time that Israel, in Israel's history, when the Lord moved through Egypt, destroying the firstborn. If you remember, Pharaoh would not let the people go. And so there were ten plagues, blood, frogs, lice, fies, locusts, livestock, hail, boils, darkness, death. Ten, there's ten plagues. And finally, the tenth one was the death angel would come through. And that was the one that actually caused the release of the people of Israel. So they were in captivity in Israel. And remember, Pharaoh is a picture or a type of Satan. Egypt is a picture of the world, a picture of the world. When, when the blood was put on the doorpost, when the Lord saw the blood, he would pass over that house. This is a foreshadowing of the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus, who came to take away the sins of the world. And by faith, we apply the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world to our hearts, to our hearts. And God's wrath then passes over us. And we are able to be into, in his family, in his family. So the Jewish Passover, we, Israel remembers their freedom from Egyptian bondage. And again, Pharaoh was a type of Satan. And Jesus, our Passover lamb, who died on the cross for our sins, freed the believers from Satan's bondage. See, everyone that is born into the world is born under Satan's bondage. It has to be set free. And the only way a human can be set free from Satan's bondage is through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death in our place. It's the only way. And again, Passover at the time of Jesus. Passover is a type. Jesus is the anti-type, and we've talked about types and anti-types before. A type is an image or a representation of something that will come to pass at some future time. The anti-type is the real deal, the real thing which the type represents. The Passover lamb, every Seder, every Jewish Seder, they're sacrificing a lamb, which was a type of the true lamb of God, the anti-type, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's all types of types and pictures in Scripture, but this is one of them that is just dramatic, just dramatic. In Judaism, you must remember there are three mandatory feast days, three feast days that if you can get to Jerusalem, you have to get there, particularly if you are male. Passover was for both male and female, but 
Every male, every able body, if you can, you get to Jerusalem for these feast days. Passover was a huge event in the nation, a holy convocation, an appointment with God. And one source said this, Jerusalem swelled to 1.2 million people. And in order to accommodate in that city 1.2 million people, there had to be preparation. So six weeks prior to the, to the, to the Passover, six weeks the preparation started. The roads were repaired. Wells were dug, ritual baths were prepared, and the graves were whitewashed. Put that indelibly in your mind. Because the, the whitewash, remember when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, you whitewashed tombs. And he's pointing, it's a picture, he's pointing at those whitewashed tombs. You're clean on the outside, but you're filthy on the inside. I'll mention this again in just a few minutes. You had to have special ovens for roasting the literally thousands of Passover lambs. Accommodations had to be made for this herd of people that are coming in. The city was beautified, and all the pilgrims approached the city, and it's this, this, this feeling of anticipation. It was the greatest event in, in the Jewish calendar. And they would often sing the Psalms of Ascent, the Halil, Psalms 113 through 118, as they're coming into the city. It's in this context that the Master, Jesus Christ, our Savior, and his disciples approach Jerusalem. They're just one group in a multitude of groups, this plethora of people that are coming into the city of Jerusalem. Jesus would enter Jerusalem, and he would come from Bethany, and we know this is Palm Sunday, and we'll talk about that next week on Palm Sunday. And he would weep over Jerusalem. He would cleanse the temple. And like the Passover lamb, he would be examined for four days. For four days, the lamb was examined. He would undergo scrutiny from the religious leaders, and he would be found without spot or blemish, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Now, there is a time when the Passover lamb is examined. Maybe checking for blemishes. The scripture says this. The scripture instructs that the lamb must be checked for blemishes. Only a perfect, spotless lamb would suffice. The examination took place over a four-day period of time. Jesus, our Passover lamb, he was examined over a four-day period of time. Again, type, anti-type. Type, the real deal. And he's examined. Now, on the website, Hebrew for Christians expands on this. They say this. During the time of the temple in Jerusalem, it was customary to examine the Passover lamb four days before Passover so the worshipers could make sure absolutely sure that their lamb had no spot or no blemish which would preclude that lamb from being sacrificed. This was done to fulfill the instructions in Exodus 12. This period of time allowed each family member, now hear this, each family member with this little lamb, and it was a one-year-old or younger lamb, that they would become very attached to their lamb. A bond was formed. And there's a picture of a Passover lamb. This little lamb would come into your house. And for four days, your kids would be cuddling it, and you'd be cuddling it, and you'd be nurturing the lamb, and you'd be becoming familiar with the lamb, and you'd be loving on the lamb. But that lamb was going to sacrifice and die. And for the sins, or the cover of the sins, at least for, the, for that period of time for the Jewish people. On the afternoon of Nisan the 14th, so from the 10th to the 14th, this examination would take place. At twilight, the lambs were publicly sacrificed by the whole assembly. 
by all the people in the, in the nation. They'd be sacrificing. Look at in the church, all the people are responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. All, he bore all of our sins. He hung on the cross because of each one of us that was ever born into this world. So the entire nation was responsible for the death of the Lamb. Each family then was to apply the blood of their personal Lamb upon the doorpost as a sign of their faith. Each person has to apply the blood on the doorpost of their heart so the wrath will pass over you. They sacrificed the Lamb in which they had a personal relationship with. Our Lamb of God, we have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how was this sacrifice carried out? Because, look at 1.2 million people in Jerusalem. You have to have thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs that were going to be sacrificed. This system had to be very, very efficient. At the time of Jesus, the lambs were killed, and their blood was applied to the altar in an old-fashioned fire line style. The lines of the priest stood ready with gold and silver basins for passing the blood onto the altar. Now, this is, those basins were called a Mizrak. So the Jewish, the lamb would be sacrificed, the blood would be put in the Mizrak, and then these, this line would be formed. This lamb is sacrificed, this blood is then put in this Mizrak, and this would be handed to each one. And this is happening very quickly over a long, long distance, a fairly long distance, and the last one would jerk the blood on the altar. Now, this was a, get a gold and silver utensil, Mizrach. And these, these priests were so efficient at this that there was literally, in, you could see from the distance, a line, a, like a one silver line or one gold line because they'd be going so fast with this. Now, in doing it so fast, what's going to happen? All that white garment that they had on, full of blood full of blood. It's, it's a real significant sacrifice. It's a real picture of the cross when Jesus took this extreme beating for us and all the blood at the cross and what that blood means to us. We'll get into that more in just a second. So you have the line of priest. Sar Shalom, a Messianic website, talks about the process. And they say this, an Israelite slaughters the Passover lamb, a priest received the blood, hands it to his fellow priest, and so on. The priest nearest the altar jerks it on the altar. Now, there are some people that say this, there's so much of this that's being passed up that by the time the Passover is, is done, the blood is congealed up to the knees of the priest. This is a significant event, and I didn't know if I should be getting so graphic with this, but you need to know exactly what the significance of the cross is and the blood shed by Jesus Christ. The Passover lambs were killed in three consecutive waves, and while the lambs are being slaughtered, they will sing the Hallel, Psalm 113 to 118. That will be more significant in just a second. It was the ninth hour when the lambs were sacrificed at twilight, 3 p.m. Just so happens as the lamb was, those lambs are being sacrificed for the nation of Israel, that who was dying just outside? Jesus was dying. He's dying on the cross for our sins. The time that the Passover lambs are being sacrificed, a picture, a type, the anti-type, the real sacrifice for the sins of the world is dying on the cross. Dying on the cross for our sins. And he is hearing the Halil sung 
every time one of these groups goes through. And that Halil is all pointing to him. Within minutes, the, the clean and spotless courtyard became full, filled with blood. And interestingly, the dead lambs were then hung on hooks with their arms spread in a crucifixion-type pose. Again, type, anti-type. A picture of the awfulness of sin. The sacrifice needed to deal with our sin. See, we take sin casually. We take sin and just kind of brush it off. It's just a little sin. God is holy. God is pure. He cannot be in the presence of sin. Sin is an egregious thing to him. Any, any sin. And so it's the awfulness of sin that is being pictured here. And it required the death of an innocent animal, or in a case for us, humanity, the innocent Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Levites continued chanting the Halil. Their voices could be heard. Thousands of pilgrims also were chanting the Halil in the temple. And it filled this, 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 this chant filled all the, all the places in Jerusalem. And at that time, Jesus had been hanging on the cross for six hours. And, they, and part of the Halil is this. The cords of death entangled me. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his righteous ones. Part of the Halil. Jesus is hearing this, speaking of him. Open for me the gates of righteousness. The stones that the builders rejected has become the capstone. Jesus died. It was the ninth hour, the very hour that the Passover lambs were being sacrificed. This is the story of the Exodus and the Passover lamb of Egypt. Paul tells us that Jesus is our Passover lamb. And folks, the application is this. Please don't miss this. Jesus is our Passover sacrifice. It is by his blood applied to the doorpost of our lives that we are spared the fate of the Egyptian firstborn. By his blood applied to our lives, the last judgment passes over us. Now, the question is this. Why all the blood? Why all the blood? And again, blood is required. Scripture says life is in the blood. To atone for our sins, there has to be a death. Remember, atonement is an acceptable sacrifice pacifying the wrath of God. Pacifying the wrath of God. All the blood at the Passover, all the blood at the cross, and we cannot diminish how awful the cross is. The, um, Jesus, part of his death was exsanguination. When you got beat with that flagellum, with, those, with the bone and rock, and it flayed your back and your whole body, you were bleeding profusely. You became hypovolemic, went in the hypovolemic shock. God is pure and God is holy. He cannot be in the presence of sin. All the blood at Passover, all the blood at the cross reminds us of the, of the awfulness that, uh, that, uh, that sin is and the price that had to be paid for our sin. That's the amazing thing, the price that was paid so that we could stand before a holy God pure and clean. That's the amazing thing. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. An innocent, sinless lamb had to die for the sins of the world, and that was our Messiah. Now, I want to digress for just a minute to talk about how Jesus was examined. We know that for four days, the Passover lamb, they're looking for any little spot, any little thing that might disqualify that lamb from being the sacrifice. Well, Jesus went through the same thing for four days. 
and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Herodians and that sort of thing, they are the ones that examined him. So the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the teachers of the Torah, all these groups posed difficult questions to him, and they tried to trap him in his words. They were looking for any theological misstep or otherwise what might disqualify him from being the Messiah. They did not want him to be the Messiah. They refused him. They rejected him. Now, Jesus deals with his examiners as the examiner. This is an interesting twist. And if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 22, verse 15, but I will start with verse 21. Jesus is being questioned in verse 21, 23. comes into the temple, and the chief priest and the elders of the people confront him as he was teaching. So he has a confrontation with them. This thing goes on and on, but I want you to pick it up in 22.15. And in 22.15, we see this. Then the Pharisees went and plotted. It was a plot to kill Jesus how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were the political religious folks. They were mostly Sadducees. Teacher, we, we know, watch the flattery. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God and truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. In other words, he's not a face looker. He doesn't, he doesn't take flattery from people. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, they thought they had Jesus. They thought they had him right by the earlobe and were pinching on him. And he answered them, and he says, But Jesus perceived their wickedness. Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Notice how kind Jesus is to those who are against him, those who are trying to keep people from him. He deals with them very rigidly. Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose image is on, on the inscription? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he says these great words. Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Folks, that's, that's something for us today. We have a responsibility to live as good citizens within the culture that we've been placed in. We are to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and what is God's, what is God's. We're to pay our taxes and be good citizens until, until Acts chapter 4, verse 19, when the culture or the government asks you to do something contrary to the word of God. And then we must stand, feet dug in, and say, no, we cannot do that. Our God is the one that we worship. Our God is the one that we serve. That's the tension. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. This examination continues with the Sadducees in the next section. And then Jesus gives the greatest commandment in the face of all these Pharisees who are law, 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 613 laws, law, 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 keep the law perfectly, keep the law. And they made it more rigid than it needed to be. It was weighty on the people. And Jesus sums it up in verse 37. You shall love the Lord with all of your heart. That's us Christians. We are to love the Lord with all, not a partial love. It is to be all of us, every part of our fiber, every part of our being, all of our heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. 
This is the first and greatest commandment. God first. The second is likened unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. First four to God, last six to people. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And then he enters into a dialogue with the Pharisees. He's been examined. He's had it right up to here with the Pharisees. And if you turn to chapter 23, verse 13, he lays it on them. And he doesn't hold anything back from them. Nothing back from them. Woe to you. Now, that word woe is a cry of grief, or it's a cry of grief with denunciation. See, I think the heart of Jesus is that these people would turn and live. That's the heart of Jesus. But again, the Pharisees, the leadership, were keeping people from Jesus. And he says, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. See, that's the biggest thing that he had against the Pharisees. They were stopping people from coming to him, finding the true way to heaven. That is one thing that God absolutely abhors, are people that take people away from the true path. And he goes on on in verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 16, Woe to you, blind guides. In 17, he doesn't hold anything. Fools and blind. Verse 19, fools and blind. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And this is, he's hitting them right between the eyes. These guys that are, are the elite in Israel, the ones that are respected by all the people. And he's hitting them right in the face for what they really are. Verse 25, again, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs who appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. You see, there's a way that people can look good but not be genuine. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the way thereof is the way of death. You know, you can think you're right and think everything's perfect and think everything's wonderful, and you might fool people around you, but you cannot fool God. He sees the heart. He sees the inside. And he goes on with this hypocrites. And then he says this in verse 31. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves, that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Oh, he's just laying it on them. Therefore, indeed, now watch this. I sent you prophets. Who sent the nation of Israel prophets? God did. Who is Jesus? God incarnate. I sent you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Bechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, Jesus says these words. And I want you to hear something. After he finishes these words of condemnation, which have been probably the most that you see all in Scripture in succession, after one after another, machine gun style, the heart of God is grieved over the rejection of these people. He's not happy about this. He is saddened because they have rejected him. Ezekiel 18.23 says this, Do I have any 
pleasure, any pleasure at all, that the wicked should perish. And the cry of God to humanity is, turn and live. Turn and live. And he repeats this again in in Ezekiel 18.32. It's it's a double repeat. It's get the emphasis here. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should perish? Turn and live. It culminates in the heart of God in chapter 23, verse 37. Now watch what Jesus says. His heart is broken, and he goes, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. And in his heart, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. Isn't that intimacy? How I wanted to be close to you. How I wanted to be a, 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 a parent to you, a mother to you, a father to you. But you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate. You know what that is? A desert, a waste place, a wilderness. For I say to you, you will see me no more till I say to you, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is a significant statement. A significant statement. More on that in just a few minutes. Now, the result of Jesus' examination is he will be found without spot or blemish. He is indeed the sinless lamb who only he can take away the sins of the world. And that is a significant statement. There can be no great angel. There can be no great human. There can be no great king. It has to be the God, man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He had to be one like Adam, perfect and sinless until the day that Adam sinned. John the Baptist has this to say in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away, who takes away the sins of the world. John in 1 John 3.5 says this, But you know that he appeared so that he might take away, take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Remember how far your sins are taken from you? We went through it a few weeks ago. As far as the east is from the west, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so far as he taken our transgressions from us. You can never see them again. You can never find them again. And you know, if God forgives you that way, guess what? You have to forgive yourself. You cannot continue to live in the, in the lament of my sin. I'm sorry that I sinned against you. I repent. I change my mind. I turn to you. But that's done. And I don't have to keep going back. And remember, Satan is the one that gives you condemnation. You're no good. You're never going to make it. That sort of thing. Oh, no. Forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, we press that. We do not get bogged down in the past. Very important concept. So, like the original Passover in Egypt, the sacrifice of the lamb causes the wrath of God to pass over those who are trusting in the Lord's provision for redemption. Can you imagine the insult to God for those who say, I don't want your son. I'll go some other way. I'll find my own way. Can you imagine the insult to God who gives himself, he gives his very best himself, and for humanity to say, give him a straight arm and say, no, I'll take my own way. I'll find my own path. What an insult. In the case of Jesus Christ sacrificing, the everlasting Son of God, this redemption delivers us from the cruel bondage of Satan. 
and causes the everlasting wrath of God to forever be put away from us, forever. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the one who takes away the sins of the world. And one thing to know about this subject, another thing, it's another thing to, to, to hear this, but it's a whole other thing to believe it and receive it. The blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus, must be personally applied, again, over and over, I want to emphasize this, personally applied to the doorpost of each individual to be saved from the wrath of God. After Jesus is examined, he then gives the Olivet Discourse. Now, I don't know if you ever saw this, but the Olivet Discourse telling us about what's going to come was right after his examination. And in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus departs from the temple area. He's on the Mount of Olives, and he's, they talk about the temple being destroyed and that sort of thing. And his disciples ask him, when will these things occur? Now, that's what we want to know today. When will these things occur? What's going to be the sign of your coming? And Jesus doesn't hold back. Remember, now we're three days before the cross. He's going to lay it right on the line. He's going to tell us exactly. He gave 12 signs of his second coming. We see this in Matthew 24, 4 through 12. He describes 12 signs. The first five are described at the beginning of sorrows. That's verses 4 through 7. The next four describe a generalized turning of humanity against one another. That's 9 through 10. You might be experiencing that today. The last three describes the cultural result of turning of humanity against another. That's verse 11 and 12. I think we're experiencing that today. Now, if you would, pick up the narrative with me in chapter 24, verse 4. And Jesus is going to answer the disciples. He's answering us today this question. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed, and right out of the gate, what does he say? That no one deceives you. Now, in order to not be deceived, guess what you have to be? A Berean to search the scriptures to know that what is said is true. Okay? Compare everything that anybody tells you with the scriptures. For many, and then he says this, For many will come in my name, saying that I am the Christ. Many phonies are going to come on the scene, and again, will deceive many. Deception is a mark of the end-time church. We're in the Laodicean church age right now. Deception is, 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 is going to be prominent. And then you will hear this. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. Now, hear this. Wars and rumors of wars, I've said this many times, but just for emphasis, wars and rumors of wars have happened all through the history of mankind. But because of technology today, you have just the blessed people that you can hear of every little thing that's happening in this world. Isn't that nice? Every awful tragedy that happens thousands of miles away, on time, with pictures, come right into your face. Never been a time like this before. Never. And then he says, for nation will rise. But he says also, in the midst of this, see to it that you are not troubled. These things have to happen. Don't be troubled. I'm telling you in advance. I'm telling you, for nation will rise against nation, and kingdom will rise against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places. And this is, now watch what he says here. And these are the beginnings of sorrows. 
These are the beginning. These are the birth pangs that you might see in the, in, maybe that's in the King James. These are the footsteps of Messiah. Can you hear the footsteps of Messiah as he's coming closer and closer for coming for his people? Listen. Listen to the footsteps of Arnold Fruchtenbaum as he says, the footsteps of Messiah. Then they shall deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. Now, I believe, you don't have to believe this, I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture that we're going to be taken out before the tribulation period. I could be wrong. There's a lot of brilliant people that talk about a mid-trib, a pre-wrath type of, of, of rapture. And, and, and we get in, our, in the book of Revelation, we'll go through some of those things and why we believe what we believe and, and, and the different views. But anyway, he's talking about the tribulation. They're going to kill you and you will be, watch this, hated by all nations. Now he's speaking to the Jewish people here, for my namesake. And many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up. This is during the tribulation. And again, deceive many. The deception will be like on no other time on earth. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, we'll lose our love for one another. Then he says, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, think about this. This is an awful time. The tribulation period is the worst time that has ever existed on planet earth. I believe that we're going to miss that. Again, if I'm wrong, we go through it and we see the Antichrist, you need to be prepared to realize, I don't know that I'm exactly right on this, okay? I think I am, as these other people think they are, but we will know as it unfolds, as it gets closer. But listen to this. This is, this is awful, but remember this. Two-thirds of the Jews will die in the tribulation period. That's Zechariah. 13.8. And remember this also, one day Jesus will reign as Israel's true king, but only after the awfulness of the tribulation. It will take the tribulation period to break the will of the holy people, for them to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus foretold that one day Praise would rightly be given him as Israel's king, but only after, only after the Jewish people do two things. They have to do these two things. The tribulation period will drive them to this. Number one, recognize their national sin of rejecting Messiah, Hosea 5.15. And again, plead for him to return. We saw this in Matthew 23. You will see me no more till you say, Baruch Abab, Bashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it will take the awfulness of the tribulation period to accomplish this. And this will, then they will finally recognize Jesus as their Messiah. Here's Zechariah 12.10. Now, this, I can't see how they can read this and not realize that Jesus is what they're talking about here. And I will pour out on the house of David, in the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Who did they pierce on Calvary? Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. Ezekiel tells us how this is going to happen. Ezekiel 36, verse 24. This is a millennial verse. 
This is when all of the nation of Israel will be saved. Those one-third that come through believing in the Messiah. Watch what he says. For I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. Every Jew on planet Earth will be living in the nation of Israel during the millennial reign. Nobody in New York, nobody in Florida, nobody in Detroit, nobody in wherever. All will be in Israel. They are making Aliyah now, ascending to Jerusalem now. This will be the biggest Aliyah ever. Everyone will be going to Jerusalem or Israel to live. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. He's talking about salvation here. I will clean you from all of your filthiness, from all of your idols. What was the nation of Israel doing? Worshiping false gods. I will give you a new heart, heart transplant. I'll put a new spirit within you, and I will take the heart of stone. Your stubborn, unrepentant heart I will take out of you. And I'll give you a heart of flesh, pliable, moldable. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. That's salvation. That's salvation. After the Olivet Discourse, Jesus gives in chapter 25, Matthew 25, a couple parables. One is a parable of the ten virgins. Five had oil, five didn't have oil, and it culminates in this. Be ready. Watch and be ready. And he gives a parable of the talents. And he gives a talent, a certain amount of talents to each person. And we're to use those while we are here. Because he says the, the Lord of those servants will return. Watch and be ready. And think about this. Jesus, our Passover, sacrificed everything for us. He became like us. Can you imagine it's like us becoming a gnat? It's like us becoming the smallest little critter crawling on the floor. The die for the little critters crawling on the floor. He did that for us. God came down and became one of us. That's an astounding thing. To die like us and to die for us that we might live with him forever. He warns us to watch and be ready. Look, we, the church, are the bride of Christ. And as the bride of Christ, as the bride of Christ, we must watch and be ready for his arrival. We simply do not know when the bridegroom will return for his bride. The sacrifice has been made. The bridegroom is in heaven preparing a place for us. He will come back for us in an unannounced time. Do not be deceived, folks. Scripture is replete with bride. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Be ready. Be ready. Be ready. Over and over and over, he warns us. What is the bridegroom doing now? Well, I've already tipped my hand here. He's in Father's house preparing a place for us. John 14, verses 1 through 4. Turn there really quick. We're almost through. Now, this setting here is called the Upper Room Discourse. The Passover, Jesus has just done his last Passover. Judas has been offered the sop of forgiveness, and he rejected it. Satan enters into Judas, and then Judas is summarily dismissed from the group. Go do what you have to do. Then he gets into announcing his departure, that he's going to be leaving. He tells them umpteen times. This is the last time he tells them, I'm leaving. Just a few more hours. I'm going away. And then he foretells Peter's denial. 
in chapter 13, verse 36. Hey, I'm not going to deny you. I'm going to be with you, Jesus. And Jesus gives him that you're going to deny me three times. And Peter did. It's in this context that we see the group, the disciples, in, in despair. They're having a tizzy. Worry and anxiety is consuming their souls. And watch what Jesus says. Watch what the shepherd says. Remember, Jesus is the good shepherd. And the good shepherd comes and he comforts his disturbed sheep. Let not your heart be troubled. You're very familiar with these words. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then he tells us something that is very significant. In my Father's house are many mansions or rooms or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you because I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. I go to prepare a place for you. You've been born again. You've received Jesus Christ as your Savior. You are the you. You are the bride of Christ. Our bridegroom is away preparing a place for us. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, this is a rapture verse. You see what he's saying here? I will come again and receive you, and I will take you to Father's house, to the mansions. Not to dwell here on earth during the millennial reign. There's a difference. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. We know the way, and there's always somebody. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus must be going, oh, oh Thomas. How many times? Jesus said to him, and by extension to us today, to all the world today, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except through me. By me. It is by Jesus Christ alone. Now, Scripture is repeat again with bride be ready. Bride be ready. No one knows the day or the hour. No one knows when Jesus will return for his bride. But guess what? No one knows when Jesus will return for you. We are not guaranteed one second here. We are to be ready all the time. Just a little reflection. A little reflection. This person wrote this. His name is W. Benai. And he writes this in the pulpit commentary. He says this, in this life, good and evil are inextricably conjoined. Within the same town, in the same street, in the same congregation, in the same family, there are to be found believers and unbelievers, just and unjust, children of God and children of the wicked one. But hereafter, there will be a great severance, lamentable separations, and joyous reunions. The haters of God will be taken from among the just and dismissed to their own place. The lovers of God will be gathered to their own people and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. This being so, it behooves me to ask myself the question, who are my people? Who are the people whose likeness I bear? Whose company is to me congenial? Whose taste that I share? With this in mind, Jesus is saying, watch and be ready. Allow me to close with these words of Mark 13, 32. But of that day and hour, no one knows, 
not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray. For you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going on a, far, on a journey to a far country, who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping, not ready. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Watch for the signs of the times. Be ready. Watch and be ready. Be ready. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. For you yourselves know perfectly the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Be ye also ready, for the Lord cometh in an hour that you think. Therefore, watch and be ready. Watch and be ready. Watch for the signs of the times. Don't get lulled into complacency. Watch for what's happening. Watch for the things that Jesus has spoken about in prophecy. Watch what the Old Testament prophets have said. Be ready. Study prophecy. Have a clue what's going on around you. Folks, you can almost hear right now the footsteps of Messiah. Be aware of what's going on. Deception abounds. Don't fall for it. May this resurrection season implant indelibly in our hearts that the sacrifice of our Passover lamb was done for us, that his return is imminent. Anytime we may hear the trump sound, be ready. Jesus, our Passover sacrifice, warns, don't be deceived. Watch. Watch and be ready. You do not know when the master of the house is coming for you. Watch. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time to study your word. And Lord, you've given us all kinds of warnings here, what to watch for. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilence. This is all happening now. The biggest sign that you gave us was Jews are in their land. They've been regathered. May 14, 1948. That was a quantum leap in, in the prophetic clock. We believe that we are the people living at the time when, those, when, that, when the Jewish people had their nation established that we will see the second coming, at least we qualify to see the second coming of Christ. And Lord, help us to have our eyes open. Help us to be keenly aware of what's going on around us in the culture. Help us not be mesmerized by the news, by the media, by what's going on with presidents and Congress and Supreme Courts. But help us to have our eyes focused on you. Help us to see through the smoke screen that we see in our culture today. And help us to be men and women of faith, that we will trust you until you come for us. And we're going we're to be the five virgins that had their oil and their lamps ready, not caught sleeping, not becoming passive, not drifting off. But we want to be focused on you. We desire to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Thank you for this time. Holy Spirit, please do your work in each heart now. You've touched each one of us in some way in this talk. Help us to personalize it and put it into action, please. In Jesus' name, amen.